tweets, sound bites, texts, emojis. In our modern world, that's how we connect. But in a world where we are supposedly more connected than ever, why are so many young people, and girls in particular, feeling more disconnected from themselves? At the International Coalition of Girls Schools, we're invested in ensuring that girls are whole, healthy, and well. We believe keeping them connected to their voices and their confidence is the key to keeping them so. Like a gentle wind chime, my voice knows music happens. My connection begins. My voice, my voice, my voice synthesizes with my friends and teachers, allows other voices to complement mine, harmonizing and remixing as one. My voice leaps across the hallway to say hello to my classmate who's having a bad day. Our voices speak a powerful magic. Tell a story that will unfold long into the future. Together. 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 We make history every day. Together. We are instruments of change. Connection often begins with an invitation. The Connected Girl, a podcast series curated by the International Coalition of Girls Schools, is an invitation to those who know, love, and believe in empowering girls to engage with the experts we have gathered to understand the power and possibility of the many connections in the lives of girls. You know, I didn't set out to be a parenting expert. In fact, I'm not very interested in parenting, per se. It's just that there's a certain style of parenting these days that is kind of messing up kids, impeding their chances to develop into their selves. There's a certain style of parenting these days that's getting in the way. I guess what I'm saying is we spend a lot of time being very concerned about parents who aren't involved enough in the lives of their kids and their education or their upbringing and rightly so. But at the other end of the spectrum, there's a lot of harm going on there as well. Where parents feel a kid can't be successful unless the parent is protecting and preventing at every turn, and hovering over every happening, and micromanaging every moment, and steering their kid towards some small subset of colleges and careers. Is there any relationship, any connection, more vital, more critical, in a young girl's life than the one she has with her parents on the journey from girlhood to womanhood. Yet is there any connection more fraught and fragile? Last year, I actually had to have like a very hard conversation with my mom just because we didn't have the best relationship and it had been building up for so long. We both were avoiding the conflict like the plague, um, but it finally came out one day when we were just the two of us and it was so hard in the moment. Um, there were so many tears. But after that, um, we both kind of went through our feelings. Um, we went through how we, the other person makes us feel um, when they do certain things. Parenting a girl as she moves along the developmental path from dependence to independence is not a job for the faint of heart. There has never been a time when so much guidance has been available to parents. Yet neither has there ever been a time when parents have struggled more to get parenting right, if there even is such a thing. I love both my parents to death, but we're definitely at a difficult point, especially as like an older teenager. I'm kind of approaching this time when I'm going to be leaving the house, going off to college and trying to be independent. And I mean, even already at boarding school, I feel like I've kind of had to start raising myself, keep my, myself responsible. Like I'm waking myself up in the morning 
getting myself to practices, get making my own meals, doing my own laundry. And it's all of these things where I felt like this big sense of independence. But it's also hard because like for my for my parents, it's hard because they don't want to let me go yet. Like they're still they kind of identify as my parents and I've identified as their child. But now I'm kind of starting to identify as just a person like on my own. And it's it's really difficult because we both have different expectations from each other where I'm kind of expecting more freedom and they're still expecting more dependence. Hi, I'm Trudy Hall, your host for On Educating Girls, a podcast produced by the International Coalition of Girls Schools. I'm excited to welcome you to the second episode in a series of conversations with experts about the connections in the lives of girls. Throughout the course of six episodes, we'll hear girls' voices talking about their connections to social media, grief, conflict, and peers, as we listen to experts we have gathered together provide wisdom and guidance for our relationships with the girls in our lives. Today's the day we embrace the topic of maintaining a healthy connection to your daughter as she becomes her own person, walking in the world in ways that are sometimes hard for you to understand, making mistakes and choices that make you shake your head and make her roll her eyes. My guest today is Dr. Judith Locke, a clinical psychologist and researcher from Australia who has authored The Bonsai Child and The Bonsai Student. She posits that even though parents are spending more time than ever parenting their children, the self-esteem and resilience in their children is not reflecting that investment. What gives? She has a theory about modern parenting strategies, and I believe you'll find her advice to be well worth a listen. Judith, I am so pleased to be able to have the opportunity to speak with you. Thank you, Trudy. It's so good to be here. As someone who has researched, studied, and practiced in the challenging terrain of parenting, let me just start by having you define a basic parenting paradigm. What does good parenting look like? Well, good parenting hasn't really changed. Parenting itself has changed, but good parenting hasn't changed. And there's really two critical factors in good parenting. The first one is responsiveness, and responsiveness is kind of the nice stuff of parenting. It's love, affection, quality time, praise, all the stuff that warms your heart as a parent. And then the second essential part of good parenting is demandingness, which is of age-appropriate behaviour through using things like rules, consequences, those sorts of things. And that's probably the harder bit of parenting, but still a very essential part. And really what's critical for good parenting is that parents are putting equal sort of effort into both of those factors to make sure that a child feels loved, but also that they're developing age-appropriate abilities and skills so that they can move beyond the home into the big wide world. So from your perspective, then, I know that you think parenting has shifted somewhat in recent times. How has it gone sideways in this generation? And perhaps what's driven that change? Well, I think we're very much more aware of what good parenting is. And a lot of the research that sort of started in about the 70s and particularly amped up in the 80s and 90s and even currently, very much focused on the kind of warmer stuff of parenting, the responsiveness stuff. And, and that was with good intentions. We 
were aware that some kids were neglected, that they had authoritarian sorts of parents that weren't giving enough love to them. So we really had a huge push in the research and a push in the sort of advice that's given to parents that you've got to really amp up that responsiveness and make sure that you are very, very warm and caring to your child so that they feel loved and build good self-esteem. And In and of itself, that's not a terrible bit of advice, but it's terrible if you then let go of all of the demandingness stuff. So in an effort to make the child feel loved and have good self-esteem, you're not giving them any sort of expectations or you're just making it warm times all, you know, and, and loving times all the time and not making them do chores or not being tough when they need to eat a certain thing for dinner and rather than what they want to eat, which might be ice cream. So it was all very good intentions that parents were trying to do, but it ended up sort of resulting in what's commonly called helicopter parenting. And it's that amping up the really good things, the sort of pleasant things of parenting, but not doing the other essential bit, which is the harder, less obviously caring, but equally caring. So from your sense, um, does this impact girls differently? I think you can get a closer relationship with your daughter than you can with your son. I think girls are much more willing to have those moments. I think boys are by nature, although this is changing slightly, and I'm seeing this change slightly clinically, but generally girls will kind of step in a little bit more to their parents, you know, if the parents are offering them softness and care. The girls will lap that up a little bit more than the boys sometimes do or the boys get to an age where they're not prepared to accept that as much. So I think the super loving stuff can go a little bit further with girls. And the area I particularly noticed this, and again, kind of miss sort of beliefs about creating children's self-esteem. To have a good relationship with your child is extremely important, but it's not such a good relationship that you're describing your child as your best friend, you know, and that, I mean, look, I would argue, you know, if your child's four years old, there's better best friends out there than four-year-olds. I don't think four-year-olds give great relationship advice or (laughs) give you sort of great, you know, ideas on what to, you know, do with your outfit. And again, I think girls will receive that kind of hyper good relationship from their parent much more than boys. I think it's a rare boy that would want to be their mother's or father's best friend, particularly their mother's in a long-term thing. So I think girls, because they're taught to be a little bit softer, will kind of sit with that a little bit longer than what is potentially good for them because they're not developing age-appropriate friendships of their own. They're much more reliant on their parent as their friend. Well, we know we know that most parents believe that it's their responsibility to build self-esteem in their child. And yet we also know that sometimes this their efforts don't take them in the direction they had hoped. So what's your sense of how a parent should be building self-esteem? The thing is, is in the early days, there's a lot of parent involvement that can assist this. For example, making sure that your child is having some successes is completely understandable and it is good. You know, you can't have a child that's continually failing. They do need some sense of success or even some encouragement in the early days. 
and that will make them, you know, feel good about themselves and be more likely to try things. But if parents are engineering their child's life to be constant wins and it's primarily through parent effort, the self-esteem will be very dependent on constant wins. And we know, you know, even if you're the smartest person in the world, that's not possible um, in the future. So what ends up happening, unfortunately, is that you are setting them up for a future, uh, setting them up their expectations for a future that is not actually that likely. And if their self-esteem is dependent on being the best at you know, lots and lots of things. Well, that is self-esteem is going to falter pretty quickly as soon as they get in to school for the first time. You know, I mean, the most annoying people to work with are the people that need to be the best at everything. So they're, they're going to be a nightmare to work with. You want the person that accepts their strengths, accepts their weaknesses. You know, it works in the short term, but it never works for these children in the long term. So let's talk a little bit more about that then. If what I'm after is good self-esteem for my child, but I'm also after a very close relationship. I think you and I hear that from parents all the time. I want a close relationship with my child. How does that show up in parenting in ways that are perhaps not as healthy? Well, you can't get perfect agreement in any relationship. You just can't do that. And particularly as the parent, you are guiding them into doing certain things that maybe they don't feel like doing in very minor ways. It's making sure they go to bed, making sure they get their teeth cleaned, etc. If you are prioritizing their liking you all the time, then you are much less likely to do that tough stuff or you tend to be apologizing, you know, or sweetening the deal. I, I call them sort of magically appearing carrots where you say to them, oh, you know, it's time to clean your teeth. And the, your child says, I don't want to clean your teeth, my teeth, sorry. And then you say, well, if you clean your teeth, then you'll get an ice cream tomorrow or, you know, or something immediate. I will, you know, give you an extra dinosaur or whatever it is. And so they are kind of not developing the really essential skill of self-regulation, which is doing what you need to do to make tomorrow better rather than doing what you want to do right now. So it's it ends up being just it's 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 completely understandable. But the other thing that I find with this is that kids know that their parents are terrified of their child not liking them. Do you know that? The parents themselves are terrified of the conflict of the child and then children get very good with the threatening statement. And, I mean, kids do this even in normal parenting. You know, all of us have heard, you know, that I not be your friend, you know, that sort of threat that they give to the parent when their parent is making them do something they don't want to do. But, you know, for a typical parent, they go, oh, well, whatever, do you know, like you don't like me for a moment, who cares? But for a parent that's been told that they need to be extremely close to their child, this is suddenly a bigger deal than what it should be. And so then something that the child should be doing is there's more doubt put on it because of the child's reaction. So the child gets very good at emotional manipulation and kind of sort of suggesting the relationship is that threat. Now, again, this is typical for kids. You know, they're smart. They do what works. We do it ourselves, you know. We, adults do it all the time, you know. Oh, if you don't want to go to the movie I want to go to, then oh, I don't want to go to the movies at all. And, you know, you always get your way. And we do all that stuff. But if you are being floored by a four-year-old each time, then 
you're not using your common sense in parenting. You're not using your your stuff where I'm the adult, I know better in this situation and cleaning your teeth is not a huge deal. Uh, you and I have talked before and one of the stories you told me, I think our parents would love to hear and maybe hear not later in this conversation, but you talked about also how critical it is to sit with a child's doubt you know, that you're mm. you're the parent and you're trying to set them up for success. And so often that means sitting with their doubt. And could you talk a little bit about what that means? How do you sit with a child's doubt? I mean, even more than doubt, it's any sort of discomfort. I think most challenge in life produces discomfort. I don't think, you know, I doubt about what's going to happen in the future. We don't know. We don't know if you go to the swimming carnival tomorrow. We don't know what's going to happen. And again, some parents will look at that, oh, my child is lacking self-esteem in this moment, so they're going uh, to do a couple of things in that moment. First of all, they're going to falsely promise things that aren't really, you know, oh, don't worry, you'll do really well in swimming carnival, which parents don't know if that's true, or they let them avoid it. Oh, well, okay, well, if you're worried about swimming carnival, let's not go, or I mean, we even get some really strong stories. Schools are telling me that parents are recording the end of swimming races on their phones and going over to the school and saying, look at this video evidence, my child won the race. You know, like, so they're not even just, you know, even when the child is clearly doesn't get first, they're putting the effort in to give them that sort of bolt of self-esteem. So I think what you have to do, and I mean, it's the hard, it definitely is the hardest part of parenting you it's very hard to sit there and watch your child you know struggle with something and you do want to go in and save them and you know not make them go to the swimming carnival or not make them face the fact that they tried their best for the netball team but didn't get on it but you can't protect them from it so you can be a loving presence in the moment you can listen you can empathize you can normalise their reaction that it does feel uncomfortable sometimes when you don't do well in the race or, yeah, I often, you know, before I go to a job interview, I get a bit nervous too. But you say, but look, that's just what happens and it's not the end of the world, you know. I can't promise what's going to happen, but I'm pretty confident you'll cope with whatever happens. And can you think of a time where you've been disappointed in the past and you coped? Like, remember that time you tried that? So you're starting to, your bank of memories for your child should start to be much more what they've got through, not the terror that it was a horrible moment for them, but they actually got through it. That's what your library should be. I actually like the way you flip that and I like the image that you left me with, the bank the bank of the things mm. that you have gotten through. It's a really interesting way to look at it. Imagine this this pile of wonderful gold coins getting larger and larger because this is the time you got through this and this is the time you got through that. Mm. So, you know, walk us down the road a bit. Children are younger. Parenting seems easier. You actually do have control. They can't drive. There's a lot of things mm. they need you and your permission to do. But what happens if they're heading down the road now toward adolescence? Where is a moment where it can get especially tricky? Well, I talk a lot about this in my first book, The Bonsai Child, and I'm very much sort of pointing in those early days. And I call them anything up to about nine years old, eight or nine years old. I call them the golden years of parenting. Kind of doesn't get much better than that. I'm not saying it's hideous after eight or nine, but... It is much easier in those years and that's because 
they want to be your friend. They want to, you know, they want to hang around you. You say, I'm walking to the shop. Do you want to come? Yes, I'd love to. Do you know, I just want to spend time with you. You're amazing and you're really cool. Often, kind of feels like overnight it's it's suddenly your child doesn't think you're the best person in the world Sudden, suddenly doesn't want to hang out with you thinks you're deeply uncool and so your child will change and you will blame their teacher or that new crowd of friends they're hanging around with but what they are doing now is they're individuating which is they are you know it's the second essential step on the road to being independent so you were their primary relationship at first then they start to make their peers their primary relationship and then they're going to move to something where all people are equal, you know, their own opinion, their peers' opinion, their parents' opinion, you know, their workplace peers. So they will move to that but there's a stage in the sort of about eight or nine years old up to about probably 17, even really early college and university where they start to judge the opinions of their peers as sometimes even more important than their own opinion of themselves. So suddenly what was working for you as a parent will cease to work in those individuation years where they start moving away from you. And where I see parenting get really problematic is that if you have used the relationship to make them behave, in a sort of way of which we were discussing before, the emotional manipulation, you can be emotionally manipulative with your child as well. You're not doing it. doesn't. It's not as evil as it sounds. Rather than say to them, time to clean up your room, you can use the relationship in the pre-individuation years to get them to do what you want to do. So you say, rather than say that, you might say, I'd really like it if you took your shoes to, the kit, to your bedroom. I'd really like it if you cleaned your room. And in the pre-individuation years, they're very keen to make you, you know, happy. They'll do anything. So, But they'll get to an age where you will give that instruction, I'd really like it if you cleaned up your room, and they'll look at the effort to clean up their room versus the desire to be liked by you, and they'll go, yeah, that's not worth it. I could care less what you think of me. So overnight, an instruction doesn't change. Now, thing is, is you've been going along beautifully to this point where you'd make me happy if you took your plate to the kitchen, you'd make me happy, you know, I'd really like it. But suddenly overnight that won't work and that's because you haven't built their respect at all. You haven't built their self-regulation, you haven't built their respect. You've made the whole thing of their behaviour dependent on the relationship you have with them. So overnight that ceases to be. I'm listening because I, I really think that the way you explain this, I'm able to visualize it, sort of picking up that relationship and pulling it and putting it to one side and say, it's time to clean up your room, right? And recognizing that it has nothing to do with the relationship. Yeah, and it's, we have all had a manager who's used the relationship with us too much. Do you know, like, oh, I'd really love it if you did, you know, work tonight. And it is not okay. It, the clean instructions, you know, where the workplace asks you, you know, this is what is required of the job is so much better because you make it personal and it shouldn't be personal. This is an instruction. You're the parent, you know best, you give the instruction. You know that in the really big picture, them learning how to do things they don't want to do is the most loving parenting. You shouldn't need to use your relationship for that. So for a parent listening, 
they can clearly dive right into your advice and they can set their daughter up for realistic life expectations. But let's let's say that there's parents out there who really have fallen into that trap of using the relationship to accomplish what they've needed. What kind of strategies could you offer and, and how how can they move forward in this moment? Now, the whole of The Bonsai Child, my first book is written in this way, in that step one, pull back on the niceties, pull back on being super, super sweet. You can still be sweet, but don't be super sweet. Don't be really overdoing the sort of care and concern stuff. Pull back a little bit on that because then step two is being a bit more consistent in your expectations. So, for example, if you've got a really a child that's somewhat bratty at the time and, you know, they're sitting in your car in the morning and you are, they are always like to get to, let's just do the morning routine because that's a really easy one. You have to get them in the car by a certain time for you to get to work on time. But your child is always late. They're always delaying it. You're screaming at them, you know, and really they could walk themselves to the bus stop or they could walk, you know, but you're doing them a favour. But this favour is now a kind of thing that's done regularly. Nobody's questioning that, you know, nobody's even mentioning it's a favour. Suddenly they expect you to do this um, all the time. So, you know, they're late. So there's a lot of screaming going on in the morning. Then when they do get in the car, they pull out their phone, scroll their phone the entire way to the, you know, you are an Uber driver essentially. You're just sitting in the, you know, you're driving, you're like a chauffeur, you should have a little peaked cap on or something. And they're just sitting there and, you know, and this is all out of whack, okay? This is completely not right. This is you overdoing the sweetness by reminding them to get up, doing them the favour by driving them to the bus stop, allowing them to treat you like an Uber driver in the in the car. And at the end of that trip, there is no doubt you're getting resentful and angry, you know, particularly if, you know, things are slack or they're getting slack in other areas. So what you need to do is you pull back on the niceties first. You say to them, look, this whole driving you to school thing isn't working for me at the moment because you're always so late. In future, if you want to lift to school, you have to be at the car by 7.50. That's it, okay? That's that's. And if you're not, then you'll have to get yourself to the bus stop. Now, they're a teenager. They're going to be able to get themselves to the bus stop. So first of all, you make it buddy, I'm not putting up with this. This isn't, you know, my favourite phrase, this is not working for me anymore. This whole thing, yeah, it's not working for me to wake you up in the morning. That's not working for me anymore uh, because you're rude when I, you know, so let's let's stop arguing about this. I'm not going to do it. The other thing in, in the car, I want it to be pleasant, do you know, and so I'm going to ask you not to have your phone, you scroll your phone as I drive you there. This is not just you, buddy. I'm going to not get your father or mother. They're not going to scroll their phone anymore. If you're in the car together, it's either companionable silence or it's chatting incidentally. But I'm not being an Uber driver anymore. That's it. We're either sitting, you know, that's the way it is. So you've just set the tone, you know. So you're not doing the super niceness, but you've also said here's a consequence that's going to occur if this happens. You've got to carry out that consequence. You've absolutely got to do it. But this is not a kind of, you've not done it in a, I'm so sick of you being so rude in the morning and you, you're not, or, you know, you're not doing emotional manipulation, just going, buddy, for this to keep working, this is what's going to have to happen. And so it just takes out the drama. Now, they're not going to be happy. They're not going to go, oh, thank you so much for getting me on the right track. Of course, they're going to be angry about this. 
you know, they go, ah. But the thing is, is you have been doing them for a favour. You're just making it very clear. And the chance of you guys having a better relationship by doing this at the end, much higher, much higher to do it that way. Logical consequences. Excellent story. I know that we could pump you for great strategies all day. Um, And I'd be eager to do that because I love the way you tell stories and I like the way you put them into visuals so that I can act on them. But other than reminding our guests that they should be reading your books, The Bonsai Child and The Bonsai Student, what advice would you like to leave our listeners with? I mean, I'll give you two things. First of all, accept your child for who they are. Accept them for who they are. Accept their strengths. Accept their weaknesses. Don't pre-write the way your child's story is going to go. I see too often that parents think, if I put all this effort in, my child will be this. My child will get this. My child will be very popular, be very successful. They'll be a doctor or they'll be a... That's not the way it is. Your child should show you. You set up the boundaries and all of that sort of stuff and you get responsiveness and demandingness right. But then you let your child show you who they are as opposed to you them performing for you. So that's step number one. Step number two, I think, you know, and the second bit of advice I'd probably give is putting your child, and I talk about this a lot in both books, putting your child on commission and not salary. By that I mean get them to earn the good life they have. I think if you, if listeners are sitting there thinking, geez, I'd really like it if I was my child, I'd love to be having my child's life. I think my child's life is perfectly pleasant. It's probably because of the effort that you're putting them there in. And unfortunately, they're not going to get a good sense of accomplishment if they're re- having this wonderful life, but they're not really working at all for it. So you can get them on commission in minor ways, making sure that they're doing chores for the family, that they're, you know, even things like, Um, when you cook them a meal, that they sit at the table with you eating that meal. So you've, you know, they're putting in the effort there. They'd put some effort into setting the table or cleaning up afterwards. Um, If you go on a holiday, make sure that they've earned their spending money, that, you know, that they get a sense of a, that they're earning the holiday rather than just being given it. Um, I think we miss, you know, we, we underestimate all the time the great strengths of feeling one has earned and deserved the good things in their life. And I think it's one I think it's one of the big impacts on kids' depression these days is that I don't know if they've got a genuine sense of accomplishment. And I think they're they are I think that is very easy for you to build. Even in the younger years, they want to go and see the latest Disney movie or Pixar movie. Great. If you can, if we can work together cleaning up this living room in the morning, we can go to the movie, you know, mid-morning after we've done that. Again, greater sense of accomplishment than just demanding it or nagging a parent to get it. Um, so, yeah, I'd strongly suggest that those two things as being great ways for kids to feel who they are is great and good enough. I suppose I'd, I'd just add one more thing. Don't be afraid of conflict. They have to have some conflict with you, as we've described in this interview, for them to grow up. You know, if you aren't arguing with your teenager, something's wrong. They, they need to be. You need to. Good relationships negotiate the terms all the time, particularly in those teen years where they haven't fully develop their common sense. So you do need to be their common sense. They won't like you for it. But if you're unprepared to have those difficult conversations and that bit of conflict, 
your child is not going to be as well um, not set up for the future and they're going to be doing dangerous things. So don't fear conflict, but make sure that the conflict is only what's necessary for them growing up, not the kind of minor stuff about entitlement and stuff like that. And what do we both know that the greater the sense of accomplishment you have, the greater your self-esteem is. It feeds, it feeds on itself. And so as I listen to you, I'm walking away with some great images of ways in which parents can take the relationship with their child and put it to one side as they show equal parts of responsiveness and demandingness, remembering they're the parent. And I really like the last piece you gave us was put your child on commission put your child on commission? What are they doing to, to earn, you know, all the work that you are putting into making their, their life, the life that it's, they need it to be for themselves because of who they are? I want to thank you very much for your time, for your wisdom, for your humor, for your storytelling. Um, it's been terrific. So thanks very much for joining us. Thanks so much for the opportunity, Trudy. I definitely agree with the statement that we avoid conflict like the plague. I do that especially just because I feel like sometimes my thoughts are a little bit not irrational, but with time, I don't have that feeling anymore. So I definitely avoid it as much as I can. Or if I'm having conflict with my parents, I'll walk away, take a breath or just change the subject so we don't have to talk about it. But I understand now how that never works because they always bring it up later on and talk about the conflict. And so I think it's important for us as we grow in our relationships to learn how to not avoid it. You've been listening to the second episode of The Connected Girl, a specially curated series produced by the International Coalition of Girls Schools for its On Educating Girls podcast. This episode is the second of six podcasts engaging listeners to think about the many ways that the connections in girls' lives keep them whole and healthy. The International Coalition of Girls' Schools created this series in true partnership with Two Stories, podcast production by Carol Williams, with audio editing, engineering, and sound design by Cozy Mzamela and Jordan Tui. Thanks to the girls of Wickham High School in High Wickham, Buckinghamshire, England, and Culver Girls Academy in Culver, Indiana, for the audio clips of girls' voices used in the Connected Girls series. The story of the poem, Tell Our Story, featured in the intro, can be found on the ICGS website. For more information, please refer to the show notes.